journey through the Scriptures, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight, you don't have a Bible. There are men coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. And uh, wave, get their attention, and they'll get a Bible into your hands so you can follow along. And that Bible will be marked right to the passage we're studying this evening for your convenience. In chapter 51 of the book of Isaiah, the Lord it records the Lord's comfort to a righteous remnant that was a part of uh, the children of Israel who were captive in uh, Babylon. And we remember, and it's, it would be true of um, any nation throughout history, even the fall, say, of the Roman Empire. It fell because of its corruption from within. It rotted from the inside out. Many books written about that, its moral and its spiritual decay and corruption and so forth. But any time there is a group of people or a great kingdom that collapses or a nation that goes into captivity because of wickedness and unrighteousness, it doesn't mean that every single person was wicked. There's always a righteous remnant among God's people, no matter how uh, wicked they may be in general or disobedient that they might be. And so here they are, a group of righteous people among the Jews. They're in captivity in Babylon. The great longing of their heart is to once again be able to take them, their children, their children's children, uh, back into Jerusalem, back into the land to experience all of that. And here the Lord in this chapter, He encourages those that long to return to the land and the life that God had for them, uh, that it was going, God was going to give them the desire of their heart. And His encouragements in this vein take the form of three calls to listen. That word is repeated three times uh, in the chapter in verse 1 and then 4 and 7. We'll make note of it as we go uh, through. And then in addition, there's three calls for them to awaken uh, in verse 9, verse 17, and then the first uh, verse of chapter 52. And so the listen, number 1 in verse 1, listen to me, uh, you who follow after righteousness, you who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the hole uh, of the pit from which you were dug. Uh, this speaks of Mesopotamia where Abraham was called by God out to become the father of the Jews and the father of faith. God declared to this remnant, Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you, for I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. For the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in it, thanksgiving and the voice of melody. And so he calls on them uh, to listen concerning the past, that they were to remember God's gracious dealings with their father Abraham. Uh, again, God had called them out of this rock quarry, so to speak, called uh, Mesopotamia, despite the barrenness of his wife physically, uh, of Sarah. Uh, he had given them a, a great posterity, a great nation had been made of them. Them. And uh, so God was saying, if I created you as a nation, made you a great people and gave you great promises, then uh, am I not able then to do the lesser miracle of delivering you from Babylon and returning you uh, to the land? I think there are times in life when the trial that we are facing is the most significant trial we've ever faced in our life. That does happen. It isn't the norm. 
But um, most of the time, when we face a trial in our lives as God's people, it is not the worst trial that we've ever faced. It just happens to be the most current trial. (laughs) And most of the time, not always, because when you face the worst one, that's the worst one. And I mean, you're learning some stuff there. But most often when we face a great trial or season of difficulty within our life, we have typically passed through deeper waters or more difficult trials that God has already brought us through. And that it's an important time to stop and remember what God has done. Wow, this is a bad trial. This is really hard. But I've been in worse than these, and God got me through it, and God took care of me. And that's kind of what God is telling them here. Hey, I've done bigger things, harder things in your past. Remember that. So you don't lose hope in your current situation. And that's a wonderful word and maybe a very wonderful and specific word uh, to some of us tonight. He moves on to his second listen there in verse uh, 4. And he says, listen to me, O my people, and give ear to me, O my nation. And so God is speaking to them. Here he's spoken to them of their past. Now he speaks to them of their future And God tells them that one day he's going to establish a kingdom. It'll be centered in Zion. Zion is Jerusalem. And that that kingdom is going to be marked by righteousness. And it's going to be marked uh, by salvation. Listen to me, my people. Give ear to me, O my nation. For law will proceed uh, from me. And I will make my justice rest as a light of the peoples. My righteousness is near. My salvation has gone forth. And my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands will wait upon me. And on my arm they will trust. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look on the earth beneath. For the heavens will vanish away like smoke. The earth will grow old like a garment. And those who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever. And my righteousness will not be abolished. So he tells his people it looks like Jerusalem or Zion is kind of doomed. Your sin has forfeited the great plans that I had for the city. Uh, God says nothing of the sort is going to happen. He encourages them that righteousness is going to win. It is going to prevail in human history, uh, no matter uh, whether it looks like it's on the winning side or not. I've never felt like I'm... I mean, in all the years of being a Christian and in a nation that has a Judeo-Christian ethic, I feel like a smaller and smaller minority by the day. The level of persecution, opposition to Christianity and God's definitions of right and wrong and so forth. And sometimes we just need a reminder as God's people that this is just a blip in human history. It's not going to end this way. Unrighteousness is not going to prevail. Righteousness and salvation is going to win. God is going to make sure of it. We are on the right side. And it's up to us to take our little place in human history, live for God, live faithfully for the Lord, and, uh, and no matter what everybody else is or isn't doing, and uh, but to do it with this confidence, uh, we're on the winning side. And it does our hearts very, very good to hear that. Uh, and and uh, uh, and that's why it's you know he writes it to them. It is it has a far fulfillment 
and its greatest fulfillment uh, is in the kingdom age when uh, Jerusalem will be the capital of the whole world, not just Israel. Uh, Both Jew and Gentile will be ruled by Jesus from uh, Jerusalem. But even its farest and and even greatest fulfillment is beyond the kingdom age uh, into when all of it gives way to a new heaven and a new earth. And, of course, none of this is good news uh, for the wicked at the close of the kingdom age, the heavens and the earth are going to be destroyed, all unrighteous, and uh, the unbelievers will perish, but God will be eternally secure. And thus his warning there in verse 6. His third listen in verse 7 is concerning the present. He talks about the past, uh, for them to listen to what he has to say about their past, about their future, and now concerning their present. And concerning their present, that they were not to fear the reproach and the insults of uh, the unrighteous for uh, being righteous. Listen to me, you who know righteousness. And it's kind of talking about Christians who really care about their walk with God and serious about obeying the Lord and serving Him and representing Him in the world. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, you people in whose heart is my Lord. Do not fear the reproach of men, nor be afraid of their insults, for the moth will eat them up like a garment and the worm will eat them like wool. They've got a very dismal future. They're going to perish like a garment that's eaten up by moths. And so that, that eating up and spoiling of a garment, when if you've ever pulled something out, now I don't know what they make clothes out of today, polyester and moths don't like it or whatever, but if you pull something out where some bug is eaten upon it, you know, you realize, wow, this is silently been going on for a year since I last wore this sweater or this shirt or whatever, and now it's eaten up. And so it's always going on. Uh, there, again, no future in wickedness, no future in, unru- in righteousness. But he says there in verse 8, but my righteousness will be forever and my salvation from generation to uh, generation. And so God promises them and us that one day he's going to bring uh, all persecution of his people for solely being his people. All that's going to be brought to an end and those enemies are going to perish like a moth-eaten uh, uh, garment. And so righteousness and salvation again is going to prevail and persecution uh, of the righteous by the unrighteous is actually kind of a badge of honor uh, for a child of God. Jesus said, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so they did, uh, so did their fathers to the false prophets. It's interesting, uh, of course, this time of the year, I've been reading uh, heavily on, in concerning the passion of Christ, the, uh, all of the passages in the Bible that speak to his crucifixion and then also related to his resurrection. And as I was reading a little bit of that this week, I was uh, impacted once again by Jesus' statement to a group of women who were lamenting as he was uh, being led to the cross at Calvary. And Jesus uh, spoke to them and he said to them, if they do these things in Greenwood, what will they? What will be done in the dry? And what he was saying is, if this nation, if the religious community, if Rome will do what they are doing today 
to me, to perfect righteousness, to sinlessness, then what in the world will they do to dry wood? Wood that is uh, prepared and uh, for burning, prepared for judgment. I look at the world in which we live today, and year by year it's happening, where persecution against Christians is jumping dramatically worldwide. It is very dangerous to be a Christian in the world today. Very dangerous. In the United States of America, we don't face yet physical persecution for our faith, but there is persecution against us for adhering to the Bible, making that the standard of our business practices, making that our belief system and all. And that persecution is rising up. It will give way to other things as they get an upper hand on things. But a world that persecutes and kills Christians for simply identifying with Christ and loving Him and obeying Him, that is a world that is setting itself up for judgment. Not only the judgment of God, but what will, what does the kind of person who will persecute another person and even kill them for being faithful to Christ Once they've gotten rid of the Christians, then what does that kind of person do? They simply turn their attention then upon themselves and then begin to destroy one another. And so it's a terrible sign for the world that the persecution of Christians is rising and rising dramatically. It means that the world is setting itself up for a terrible, terrible judgment and it's always been through, true throughout history. Then in verse 9, he begins his first of three awake uh, statements. And he calls upon the righteous remnant, uh, the Lord does to, uh, the righteous remnant rather, calls upon the Lord to give them a second exodus out of Babylon, kind of like the first one that they had out of Egypt. And so they say to the Lord, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. And so the idea is, God, wake up, wake up, and give us another exodus. So they're like anybody that's in a difficult circumstance where they think, wow, the only way that I could be in uh, circumstances this difficult is if God is asleep at the wheel. And so I need to wake him up. And uh, and so they call on God to awaken to their condition. God was completely aware of their condition. And God's response is, I don't need to awaken. You need to wake up. Not to the hardness of your circumstances, but, but to what I am uh, producing and working in and through those circumstances. Awake, awake. Put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the ancient days and the generations of old. Are you not the arm that cut Rahab apart? And Rahab is a poetic term for Egypt. Speaking of uh, the first exodus out of Egypt and wounded the serpent, another image of Egypt. Are you not the one who dried up the sea and the waters of the great deep and, and parting the Red Sea for their exodus that made the depths of the sea a road for the redeemed to cross over? And so the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And so they call upon the Lord to uh, accomplish this and give them this season in their life once again. And the Lord said, I, even I, am he who comforts you. 
Who are you that you should be afraid of a man who will die and of the son of man who will be made like grass? And you forget the Lord your maker who stretched out the universe and laid the foundations of the earth. You have feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor when he has prepared to destroy, when he has prepared to destroy. And where is the fury of the oppressor? The captive exile hastens that he may be loosed, that he should not die in the pit and that his bread should not fail. But I am the Lord your God who divided the sea, whose waves roared. The Lord of hosts is his name, and I have put my words in your mouth. I have covered you with the shadow of my hand, that I may plant uh, the heavens, uh, may, that I may plant the heavens, lay the foundation of the earth, and then to say to Zion, to Jerusalem, you are my people. And so Zion, he's saying, is once again going to be the capital. It's going to be the home of the Jews as he speaks to these exiles. And, um, and no matter how powerful uh, Babylon might be, uh, God is going to be, in, in basically what he's saying in this long section that I've just read through, is that it will not take any effort on his part, God is saying, uh, to secure their release from Babylon. Uh, the battle between Babylon and God uh, will be very, very one-sided. The second awake uh, is recorded here now in verse 17 where God uh, informs them that their season of uh, judgment or discipline is going to uh, is just about over and God is now going to focus his judgment upon her enemies. Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. And so uh, the cup of trembling refers to a cup uh, filled with wine, so to speak, and the judgment of God is uh, kind of portrayed in this way. Uh, the cup of, of trembling speaks of the wrath of the chastisement of God uh, that was meted out on Jerusalem because of her sin, and that judgment is, is pictured as wine inside uh, of a cup, and nothing that uh, in, in Jerusalem drank deeply of that, that cup and of that judgment. Remember when Jesus... On the night before his crucifixion, when he spoke to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he said, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Uh, he's using the same imagery as from this passage and elsewhere uh, in the Bible. The cup was a cup of judgment, and he was recognizing that on the cross he was about to bear all of the judgment that our sin was due. And he said, if there's any other way to save man than me to bear the judgment that man's sin deserves, then let this cup pass from me. And the fact that Jesus ended up crucified at Calvary was a testimony of the fact that there is no other way for us to be saved. There is no one, verse 18, to guide her among all the sons she has brought forth, nor is there any who takes her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. These two things you have, have come to you. Who will be sorry for you? Desolation and destruction, famine and sword. By whom shall I comfort you? Your sons have fainted. 
They lie at the head of all of the streets like an antelope in a net. They are caught. Uh, They are full of the fury of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. And so when God poured his judgment out upon Jerusalem, allowed them to go into captivity, even their strong young men like antelope were caught uh, as if in nets and rendered helpless in the defense of, of the people and Uh, They ended up uh, dying as a result. And so the Lord then declares, Therefore, please hear this, you afflicted, and drunk, but not with wine. Thus says the Lord your God, uh, your Lord, the Lord and your God, who pleads the cause of his people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup of trembling, the dregs of the cup of my fury. You shall no longer drink it. And so God is saying, the time of your judgment in Babylon is coming to an end. I'm going to take the cup of judgment because of your sin and your idolatry that you've been forced to drink to bring you to your senses, so to speak, uh, as my people concerning sin. And now I'm going to take that cup out of your hand and I'm going to put it in the hand of the world that has persecuted you. See, I have taken again uh, that out of your hand, the cup of trembling, the dregs of the cup of my fury. You shall no longer drink it, but I will put it into the hand of those who afflict you who have said to you, lie down that we may walk over you. And and you have laid your body like the ground and as the street for those who walk over you. Speaking of the Babylonians who walked over their dead bodies or even walked over and abused them as they surrendered to the Babylonian uh, army and, and, uh, and took a humble position before them. God says, now I'm going to take and judge the nations uh, that have I used to judge you. Peter writes, interestingly, in this regard, he talks about the fact that judgment begins in the house of God, but it never stops there. It always then moves on into the world. When God judges his people, when he purifies the body of Christ, and there are seasons in which we need to be purified, and God can be very strong in his discipline and in his chastening. Believe me, I have trusted the strength of it. Uh, in order to make us understand how important all of this is to him, that his plan unfolds and that we be a part of that and that we take our role in all of that. And uh, so God can get our attention. He can chasten us, but uh, he never stops merely with the chastening of his body. He then moves his judgment into uh, the world. And so that cup passes from us and then to them. The third awake is found in the first verse of chapter 52, where God uh, wants them to awaken to the fact that Jerusalem is going to become the city of the Jews once again. Remember, it's in Gentile hands now, pagan hands. They, In their mind, Babylon is so big that nobody could come and huff and puff and blow it down. It just seemed like, this is it. We're going to be in Babylon for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, Jerusalem will never be our capital again. They completely lost hope of that. And the Lord uh, here promises uh, that it will be uh, it will be their capital, 
and uh, they will once again possess it. He said, Awake, awake, put on strength, O Zion, speaking of Jerusalem. Put on your beautiful garments. And so he's speaking to Jerusalem now to get ready. Put on your Sunday go-to-meeting clothes, so to speak. Put on your best clothes because I'm bringing the Jews back into your uh, city. Now, that's something. God's speaking to Jerusalem that way. Maybe it's because I've been to Jerusalem that I think of it in that way. But it's something for God to speak to a city and saying, Get ready. Um, your people are coming back. And uh, get ready for that. O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean, speaking of of the Gentile, shall no longer come to you and shake yourself from the dust. Arise, sit down, O Jerusalem. Again, it's going to become uh, the city of the Jews. Once again, the Gentiles will give way to the Jews, giving, uh, allowing them to come back in once again. Loose yourself from the bonds of your neck, O captive uh, Zion. In other words, God is saying that, uh, that Jerusalem is going to be freed from the Gentile domination of it. For thus says the Lord, you have sold yourself for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. And the children of Israel had sold themselves for nothing into bondage, idols, some money and some trinkets and some nonsense. And uh, so it wasn't like, okay, we're going to hold out, you know, some for some big deal with the devil, you know, in order to become apostates and walk away from God. They sold themselves for stupid little clay things that they put on their mantle. And uh, that's the insanity of sin. And uh, and the Lord says, you shall be redeemed without money. In other words, when they're released from Babylon... No one will have to pay a ransom in order to get them released. Uh, Babylon will release them for free. And we know historically that exactly that occurred when uh, Cyrus became king of the Medo-Persian Empire who, who overthrew the Babylonian Empire. He simply released them for free to return home to Jerusalem just as uh, Isaiah had prophesied. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at first into Egypt to dwell there, and then uh, the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. And so Isaiah is speaking for the Lord as God is remembering the former uh, adversaries of uh, of the children of Israel, uh, Egypt, uh, the Assyrians had oppressed them without cause. And now, therefore, what, I, what have I here, says the Lord, that my people are taken away for nothing? Those who rule over them make them wail, says the Lord. And my name is blasphemed continually every day. And therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, they shall know in that day that I am he who speaks. Behold, it is I. And so God said, when you come back into the city once again, Jerusalem is yours once again, then the righteous remnant will realize this is a miracle of God. Only God could have done that. And so uh, that was exactly their conclusion. God then goes on and declares how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And so uh, the Lord here speaks of the joy that is going to be experienced 
by those who are going to carry this news to Jerusalem of the fact that the children of Israel are going to be one day delivered from the Babylonian captivity. They are going to return to the city. And so you can think about the the people that once uh, Cyrus gave the decree for them to be uh, released and to return back to Jerusalem, how these fleet young men would have begun to make the race from Babylon to Jerusalem to bring the news that the Jews are coming, the Jews are coming. And so uh, it talks about the, the feet of those who brought that message being beautiful. You rarely see beautiful feet, do you? I mean, that, can you imagine? I mean, some of you might do that, but uh, being in one of those foot places and dealing with feet every day, I don't know. That takes, that's a special calling. If you do that, God bless you. Do it for the glory of God. But you've never seen feet like mine. Um, <laughs> They're big old things, and you'd probably charge me double. But anyway, I don't want to put anybody down on that, but I've rarely seen uh, beautiful feet. They're very functional part of the body, but uh, nobody puts like a picture of their feet on a mantle or their feet of their grandchildren or anything like that. It's always the face. But um, the feet are called beautiful because they bear the lips that will then carry the message uh, that uh, the greatest message that the children of Israel felt they could ever hear up to that point in their history, and that is that God was going to return the Jews back to the city uh, of Jerusalem. And so uh, this uh, uh, the Apostle Paul takes, and as he considers this message and the Holy Spirit does, uh, uh, he quotes this passage from Isaiah in his uh, letter to the church at Rome. And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. And so uh, feet are considered beautiful because they do the vessel, that, uh, the vehicle by which the body carries the message. And, of course, the greatest message that the world can ever hear as Paul applies the passage, not only of the fact that God was forgiving and restoring the Jews back to Jerusalem, but the greatest single message that any human being, it's the highest use of human speech, is to, is to declare the gospel of salvation that is found in Christ to other people and uh, how wonderful and beautiful are the feet that carry that message. You know, the, the greatest thing in the world to experience is to hear that message yourself of the gospel. Uh, the God's message, good news of salvation for sinners, and then to take that message to heart and receive it into our own lives and to be born again by the Holy Spirit. But after that, the second greatest experience in life is then to deliver that message to somebody else and be a part of leading them to Christ. And so uh, the joy and the blessing and the joy of the feet and the lips and everything here, the whole sense of celebration here uh, is, is taken and exponentially greater related to the gospel that frees us not merely from a Babylonian captivity, but frees us from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, and one day from the very presence of uh, sin. Your watchmen, he said, shall lift up their voices 
And with their voices they shall sing together, and they shall see eye to eye when the Lord brings back Zion. Break forth into joy. Sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has made bare his holy arm. In the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation uh, of the Lord. And so here is the joy that is uh, being described of receiving that good news of God's salvation. The joy of Jerusalem as the captives uh, return home from Babylon and uh, this demonstration of of God's holiness and uh, his, his power would be evident to the entire world. And then God closes it with a, uh, an exhortation, depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, be clean. Speaking to the Jews, when you leave Babylon, don't take anything of Babylon with you. Don't take an idol. Don't take anything in your mind. Don't take anything in your heart. I'm delivering you from this bondage, this captivity now. Go fully into the beautiful life that I'm leading in, you into. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Be clean, you who care, bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out with haste, nor by flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. And it's a wonderful application to the greater deliverance that we have received in Christ to leave the bondage of our sin, the bondage of the world. And when we become Christians to leave all of that garbage, all of that sin, that's what repentance is about. Repentance is a good word. It means to have a change of mind that produces a change of action, a change of direction in my life. And so when we come to Christ, it's to leave all sin, all selfishness behind, all of the exaltation of self and all of the world and its indoctrination, leave it all behind and then come in fully into what Christ has uh, for us. And so God told them if they would do this, that it wouldn't be like Egypt where he had to defend them before them, defend them behind them, and the Egyptian army coming against them and all. Uh, they would be released and, and uh, Cyrus would release them, and, uh, but they wouldn't have to run out of Babylon. They wouldn't have to make haste. And on the long journey to Jerusalem, he would protect them from behind and uh, in, in front of them. And so he did. Now we come in verse 13 of chapter uh, uh, 52 to the portrait of uh, the servant, the portrait of the coming Messiah, the Messiah, the Savior of the world that Isaiah has been speaking about all the way through uh, the book of Isaiah. But here he begins to speak of Messiah, to speak of Jesus uh, in earnest. And I think that the Holy Spirit kind of ins inspired Isaiah uh, as he as he uh, called upon the children of Israel to come out of Babylon and to be pure, as Isaiah is thinking about this deliverance from bondage, the potential of uh, purity and all, as he's thinking about uh, those two great privileges, it sends his mind 
by the Holy Spirit toward the possibility of an even greater deliverance from a greater bondage and, and the potential of a greater purity that would come through his servant, come through uh, his Messiah, uh, that is Jesus himself, and a deliverance from the world system under Satan and the possibility of the freedom from the power of sin and all of its forms. And here we have one of the most amazing prophecies concerning Jesus as the promised Christ in all of the Bible. As we made mention of this morning a little bit by way of introduction, this book is written 740 years before Jesus was born. And yet as you read these latter verses of chapter 52 and then all of chapter 53, you have this sense that Isaiah has somehow found a seat uh, and it's almost as if he's sitting there and standing there at the very base of the cross of Calvary with Jesus hanging upon that cross that he's watching the crucifixion. And one of the beautiful things about this passage is that Isaiah not only gives us a visual of the scene, but his description here is filled with instruction as to why this Savior, this Messiah, had to be crucified and uh, going through what it was that he was going through on a physical level. And it's almost as if here in Isaiah chapter 52 and chapter 53, it's almost as if we take, he takes, it's almost as if to have a gospel in the book of Romans, that great treatise on salvation, um, merge together. And of course, Isaiah is uh, frequently and well known as the fifth gospel because of its portrait of Christ. It's significant portrait of Christ. But it's beautiful, and not only that it contains for us this wonderful narrative of what was going to happen to the Messiah, and specifically on the cross, and concerning his burial and his resurrection, but also the significance of why. And it's a wonderful blending together of both the epistle and the gospel. This section of Isaiah... Isaiah chapter 53 is quoted nearly 40 times in the New Testament, more than any other Old Testament chapter. And I think we have to make mention of what is a very, very unfortunate chapter break, one of probably the three worst uh, when uh, men endeavor to uh, put divide the Bible up into chapters and verses. I'm not putting them down. I'm not saying I would have done better. Uh, but it almost looks like uh, whoever was handling Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, it must have been on a Friday afternoon or something. They were hurrying. You never want to buy a house that they were built and finished up on a Friday afternoon. Uh, so somebody was in a little bit of a rush, it looked like, and, and, uh, and that, and to realize that here, Verses 13 through 15 of chapter 52, they have absolutely no connection with the verses that precede it, and they have everything to do with what follows in chapter 53. Let's notice this beautiful description of our Savior here, beginning in verse 13. He shall, we're told, deal prudently or wisely. And you read each of the Gospels and they, they describe the birth and the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. And 
You look at that, that life that's described there and you ask yourself, is there, did, can we find even one misstep on his part, one act of carnality, one act of foolishness? And when it talks about he shall deal prudently, it does mean wisely. You search the Gospels to find one inappropriate action, one inappropriate word, one day where he just kind of let his hair down and let the disciples have it or, you know, slug the fair for Jesus or something like that. And nowhere do you find it, anywhere in all that is uh, described there. He dealt prudently day in and day out, every day, every hour, every minute of his incarnation and his public ministry. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees continually trying to trap him with, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And, you know, here is a man who had seven wives and in the resurrection who's, you know, uh, or she had seven husbands and in the resurrection which husband will she have and all. And as the Lord then responded out of his wisdom time and time again, they would marvel at him and then almost commit themselves to never trying to trap him uh, once again, and again, as the officers of the religious leaders of the Jews attempted to arrest Jesus under the authority of, of the Pharisees, they came back empty-handed and they said, no man ever spoke like this man. And you read the book, you read the Bible, you read the Gospels and see if every word and action isn't a study in perfect wisdom, just as Isaiah prophesied it would be true. It says further that he shall be exalted or extolled and be very high. And here the Holy Spirit is dealing with uh, the ministry of the Messiah, uh, uh, beginning with the ending, how his ministry is going to end uh, rather than how it's going to begin. And so before he starts to describe all of the suffering and the humiliation of Christ, he begins by revealing what that suffering would result in. He's going to end up being exalted and extolled and be very high. And Philippians chapter 2 brings this forth in, in the greatest strength, I think, in the New Testament where we're told, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Isaiah says this is where all of it is going to end. And Jesus was exalted in his resurrection, fuller exalt, uh, more, even further exalted in his ascension into heaven where right now he sits at the right hand of the Father waiting for the word to come back and bring us into heaven with him. We're told in verse 14 that he will cause astonishment. In other words, all observers of the physical suffering of uh, Jesus and that he endured with his crucifixion, they will all be dumbfounded. And we remember the beatings that Jesus took on the morning even before his crucifixion. He was arrested by the Jewish religious leaders and uh, they took him and they interrogated him and uh, and uh, uh, they uh, tried him and 
and they did so. They wanted to get rid of Jesus because he had become so popular. So many people were following him. They were threatened by his popularity, and and they hated him, and they were seeking for his death for long months and years before ever they got the opportunity to try and, and secure it. And when they brought him in in that trial, the religious leaders, imagine this, religious leaders, religious leaders of the Jews, the scribes and the Pharisees took a man in whom was no fault and put a bag over his head and began to beat him. I couldn't do that. I couldn't do that unsaved. The religious leaders put a bag over his head so he couldn't know where the punch was coming from. Couldn't look and see, ah, my peripheral vision is it's coming off from my right. I can begin to roll with the punch. He had no idea where it was coming. And as if that wasn't bad enough, they proceeded man after man to punch him and then to declare to him, you the Son of God, you the prophet of God. If you are the Son of God, name the name of the person that just punched you and they began to mock him by the time they took that bag off of his head his face was already a bloody pulp and then they delivered him to Pilate and Pilate ordered him to be scourged with uh, 39 stripes of the cat of nine tails which lashed him from the top of his head to the bottoms of his feet as they they beat him there and then Pilate then turned him over to the Roman soldiers And the Roman soldiers then meted out a tremendous beating upon Jesus once again. What the Jewish religious leaders had not accomplished, they finished off. These guys were the experts in in, uh, producing pain. A scourging was referred to as a near-death. That's the nickname that it had in the ancient world. It was a near-death experience because most people nearly died under the weight of a scourging, and many people did die. And Jesus, as he endured all uh, of that, and as he's making his way then uh, to the cross of Calvary and uh, on his way to be crucified, those that looked upon him, uh, he, we're told, will cause astonishment. People would, were dumbfounded at seeing what he had been turned uh, into. I think it's significant when uh, we realize that, and it's not just some little... Um, you know, obscure part of history that provides filler uh, concerning the account of Jesus on the morning of his crucifixion when we're told that a man by the name of Simon from the city of Cyrene was recruited to bear the cross then for Jesus. After all of the beatings and all of the scourging, Jesus, as he attempted to carry the cross, he was unable to do so. And Simon from Cyrene, he was recruited to bear the cross for Christ. And the fact that Simon was recruited to assist Jesus in the carrying of the cross, it lets us know that those Roman soldiers, by the time they inflicted that final beating upon him, they meted out every physical abuse that they could upon Jesus. They were experts in death and keeping the person just barely alive before they crucified him. And they stopped just short of killing Jesus, just in the beating. And then we're told in verse 14 further that his visage and form will be marred more than any man. By the time Jesus was put up on that cross, even as Isaiah prophesies here, 740 years before he was born, 
That as you would have looked at Jesus and seen Him teaching in the courtyards of the temple the day before and listened to His teaching and the marvel of His wisdom, and you think to yourself, that man, that face I will never forget. And if the next day you find yourself at the base of the cross of Calvary looking at Jesus hanging on the cross, you could not to save your life recognize Him as the man you saw the day before. That's how marred his visage was. But it doesn't just speak of his face in the passage. It speaks also of his form, of his body. Again, Jesus from head to toe at the time of his crucifixion. Just one great gaping open wound, just as Isaiah prophesied, would be the case. Then he goes on further in verse 15 and says that he will sprinkle many nations and the term sprinkle is very often associated with cleansing from sin in the Old Testament law of Moses. The sprinkling was performed by the high priest associated with sin offerings for individual Jews and also for the sin offering that was made for the nation as a whole on the Day of Atonement. And so this speaks of the fact that Jesus' death upon the cross would provide the forgiveness of sins, not only to the Jews, but to the whole uh, world. And, and uh, as the writer of Hebrews brings all of this out in chapter 9, he says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of the heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. It was God's way speaking to the Jews uh, in the book of Isaiah of the fact that He would be an offering for sin. The imagery would have produced that within their minds. In verse 15, we're told that kings shall be silenced before Him. And again, this speaks of His exaltation. In other words, even kings, the richest and the most powerful, the most educated and the most privileged in human history, excuse me, will be silenced at the sight of Him when Jesus returns in all of His eternal glory at His second coming. He will not be viewed at that time or treated by mankind as He was in His first coming. He will be respected and He will be reverenced. And the lost will be silenced before Him when they face Him at the white throne judgment. Because like Pilate, when Pilate came out over and over and over again on the morning of His crucifixion to declare to the Jewish religious leaders, I find no fault in Him. I find no fault in Him. I find no fault in Him. You crucify Him. We can't crucify Him. We would crucify Him if we had the right to do so, but only you Romans can crucify. But Jesus, uh, Pilate said continually, I find no fault Uh, in him. And as Jesus spoke in his public ministry to the Pharisees, he said, which of you convicts me of sin? And there is a silence in that passage. No one is able to break that silence. And Jesus, one day as the lost will stand before him before the white throne judgment, and he asks a person, which of you convicts me of sin? 
Give me one reason, one flaw, one failure, one sin, one mistake, one lie, one error, one failure that you've experienced in my life as a cause or a reason for the rejection of me for who I said I was and your failure to make me as your sa- make me your savior and the response will be silence. It'll always be silence because there's no good reason in the light of the Word of God and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the world today for a rejection of Christ. And Jesus' assessment of all mankind as sinners and in need of a Savior, it shuts up, as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3, it shuts every mouth because no one can deny that assessment. Paul wrote, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. And so the man who was condemned and crucified, as Isaiah describes here, he says one day he will condemn mankind unless they turn from their sins and they trust in him. And then notice in chapter 53, verse 1, who has believed our report, Isaiah writes, by the Spirit of God, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And the word report carries the idea of compelling argument, and it speaks of the compelling argument of Jesus' life and of his miracles, that the compelling argument of his life and of his teaching would not be believed. And the miracles that he performed, the words that he taught, they were and they are intended to cause people to recognize him, to be unique in all of human history, and to recognize him as the promised Messiah. But they refused to allow his teaching and his miracles to bring them to the only logical conclusion that somebody can come to concerning Jesus, and that is that he is the promised Messiah, and to put their faith in him, but instead they chose an illogical uh, unbelief. And Jesus constantly and repeatedly uh, commented on, uh, on uh, this very thing, his warning against rejecting his words and rejecting his works and his life and the witness that his words and his miracles were to the fact that God the Father had sent him and that he was uniquely who he said uh, that he was. And Isaiah declares the fact that when this perfect one comes into the world, that there is going to be, he is going to be met in large part with unbelief. It's illogical to me because it's spiritual. Uh, You look at unbelief in Jesus as the promised Messiah and the light of the Scriptures. And now that we're born again and we have the Holy Spirit inside of us and we can see clearly, we look at it, it's clearly illogical, but there's a blindness that we have spiritually until the Holy Spirit comes into our lives. But it's a supernatural blindness that occurs. And and God spoke through Isaiah that when he comes, the number of people, relatively speaking, that will believe in him will be relatively small. And so the unbelief of man is never, ever a poor reflection upon Jesus or the truth of his word or the marvel of his life. It is always a very bad reflection upon the worst person who rejects him. He shall, we're told in 
uh, verse 2, he shall grow before the Lord as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. And dry ground uh, describes the spiritual condition of the nation of Israel and of the world, but specifically of Israel uh, at the time in which Jesus was born into the world and during the time of his public ministry. It was dry. It was lifeless. The legalism of the Pharisees, the liberalism of the Sadducees, the two main Jewish religious systems of the day, they had made religion this dry, sterile, unfruitful, terrible thing. And Jesus comes on the scene and he brought life instantly, brought life to an otherwise dead religious environment. And again, they were so threatened by his popularity that they began, rather than repenting and becoming his disciples, they then sought to kill him in order to uh, silence him. We're told that he shall grow as a tender plant. And this speaks, I think, of Jesus' growing up in the very, very humble and unglamorous and unpromising environment of Nazareth. He grew up in Nazareth. We love Nazareth because that's where he grew up. Nobody loved Nazareth during the time of Jesus. God chose for Joseph, uh, Jesus to be raised by a stepfather and, and, uh, and, and, so to speak, of Joseph and then his mother there and, and had him raised in Nazareth instead of in the religious center of Israel, Jerusalem, and instead of being raised under the tutelage of Jewish religious leaders. But it's significant, we're told here in the passage, that he grew up before the Lord. He grew up under the watchful eye of the Lord. But I think it's a very important message, and I think especially to young people, but really to all people. Don't you ever think that growing up in a humble city like Modesto or in a humble home, a simple home, a poor home, raised by simple godly parents is ever going to put a limitation upon you? upon your life and upon what God will do uh, through you. Those things will never put limitations upon your potential for greatness for the kingdom of God. It was the very kind of city that Jesus was raised in. It was the very kind of home that Jesus was raised in. Remember, Nathaniel said concerning Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's the mantra concerning Modesto, isn't it? Can anything good come out of Modesto? We make the top ten worst everything list on an annual basis around the United States of America, but they don't understand the work of the Holy Spirit in this city, and they don't understand the body of Christ in this city, and they do not understand the uniqueness of this city in its capacity for all of its problems and all of its challenges to be this wonderful combination of providing an opportunity for a Christian to grow deep in the Lord and strong in the Lord and yet to grow into that place in the Lord in an environment that isn't sheltered from the world by wealth and by affluence but causes us to be subjected to the difficulty of life and the reality of life. It is a tremendous place to be raised for the person that is intent upon 
one day being used by God and prepared for greatness by God. And so think about the ne- that the next time that the media slams Modesto or they make some kind of a TV series uh, about us or whatever else they have in mind. Notice also in verse 2 that uh, it tells us that he has no form or comeliness and when we see him there is no beauty that we should desire him. So he, Isaiah said that when he comes, he'll have no form or comeliness or beauty that we should desire him. In other words, there was nothing about his physical appearance that hinted at greatness. That's, that's hard for me, candidly. I, think I like Gail Irwin there to talk about uh, Gail, when he talks about this particular thing and he uses the joke of somebody, a woman coming up and protesting, you know, the fact that Jesus had uh, no comeliness or form or he wasn't, you know, attractive either by his face or in, in his build, his body. There was nothing uh, about that. And uh, he uses the joke of a woman coming up and saying, what are you talking about? I've got his picture right up on my wall. He's the most handsome Irishman you've ever seen, you know, kind of a thing. But that's the pictures. We've got to have them handsome. We've got to have them dashing. That's the heroes of the world and and all. And yet Isaiah says there's nothing about his physical appearance that hinted at greatness. And Jesus didn't, that Messiah, when he came into the world, he wouldn't carry himself with this uh, air of royalty or pride or with a sense of self-importance emanating from him. But he would walk and carry himself with humility. And apparently, based upon this prophecy by Isaiah, he didn't have the handsomeness or the hunkiness either in face or in body of the great professional athlete or some movie star or some model. What he came into the world with was a different kind of beauty. And he didn't want to get a gathering or have a group of people follow him because of what he was outwardly, but that they would be attracted by a beauty, a greater beauty, uh, moral and spiritually upon his life and on the basis of his godly character. There was nothing about Jesus, nothing about his appearance that would intimidate others or that that would be the first thing that would make an impact upon them or cause people to feel that he wasn't approachable. Isaiah then declares in verse 3 that he would be despised and rejected by men, and so he was. And again, the fact that Jesus was rejected and despised by the majority of people during his public ministry and even is despised and rejected by the overwhelming majority of the world uh, today. Again, it's not a cause for unbelief, but a cause for faith because Isaiah prophesied that it would be so. Jesus declared, Enter in by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. But... Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Verse 3, he'll be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And this describes, and this portrait is amazing. It describes what Jesus went through physically in terms of his outward, his body, and also his face and the beatings and what happened to him physically. But this describes the emotion that he felt Due to man's rejection and man's contempt, he felt sorrow and grief. 
It wasn't a machine, some cyborg that was on the cross. The Bible says that he was in all ways tempted, even as we are, yet without sin. He felt it as fully as any of us would feel. The shame and the rejection and the contempt of man being heaped out upon him. He was very familiar with sorrow and with grief. Further in verse 3, Isaiah declares, We hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. And the nation of Israel as a whole did not recognize him for who he was. And they didn't give him the attention that he was due. You think that Jesus would have the attention, the supreme attention of every human being in the world. Look at the millions and millions of people. What family exists in the United States of America today that does not have at least one member of its family who is a miracle of this resurrected Jesus, where their life has been turned upside down and right side up because of their faith in Christ, the change that God has brought, the resurrection power that God has brought into their life. They are a new creation And you would think as the world would see this kind of change that numbers in the millions and millions and millions worldwide that somebody would put down their remote and put down their computer mouse and put down their newspaper and put down their books on celebrities or whatever it might be and decide, you know, I ought to investigate this for myself. I ought to investigate the life of someone who can change a life like this Jesus has apparently changed my nephew or my niece or my father or my mother or my son or my daughter. And yet they didn't do that. They instead immersed themselves and gave themselves to just ignoring Him and hiding their faces from Him. He, was, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, we're told. And this speaks of the grief and sorrow that is a consequence of our sin. And so he died on the cross to provide us with the forgiveness of our sins, but also to release us from the shame of our past, to provide us with a fresh start and a cleansed conscience. And so all of the shame and the guilt and the sorrow and the grief that my sinful past was to me, he carried even that upon the cross, and he has freed us from it. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And of course, at Jesus' death, the people assumed it was because of God's judgment upon him. It was due to his own sin. But the real reason was, as Isaiah brought out here in verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. He died upon the cross, not because of his own sins, but because of our sins, and to provide us with the forgiveness of sins related to our transgressions. And it's fascinating that word pierced or the word wounded that's used in verse 5. It literally means pierced through. And Jesus was pierced in his hands, in in his feet, in the crucifixion. He ended up being pierced in his side by the Roman soldier. Uh, There was a crown of thorns that was placed upon his head as his brow uh, was uh, pierced. And so in his death, here is this Isaiah speaking of the piercing that would be associated in all of this. And it's a fascinating prophecy 
in light of the fact that the Lord is telling us through Isaiah that Messiah, when he suffers and he suffers death, that his death is going to involve piercing. And the reason that that's fascinating is that the Jewish method of capital punishment was never crucifixion. It was never piercing. It was always by stoning. And yet here in Isaiah chapter 53 and again in Psalm 22, we're told that the Messiah will die a death that involves piercing by crucifixion. And it's fascinating that here as Isaiah is essentially declaring Messiah will be born into the world in a time in Israel's history in which crucifixion, not stoning, will be the means of execution, the means of exacting and meeting out capital punishment. And so it was as Jesus was born into the world at a time when Israel was a part of the Roman Empire and crucifixion was their means of capital punishment. He was bruised for our iniquities. The word bruised means to be crushed to be crushed under the weight of a burden. And what was the burden? The burden was our sin. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. And it's only Jesus' death upon the cross that allows us to know peace with God and then to have the peace of God. How wonderful it is to know peace with God. By His stripes, we're told, uh, we are healed. And here Isaiah spoke prophetically that Uh, Messiah would be scourged. He would be beaten with many stripes. And so Jesus was, as Pilate had ordered it uh, to occur. The healing that his stripes provide, this passage is an interesting one. There's a lot of debate concerning it. What kind of healing uh, do we have access to or a right to? What is ours in Christ by virtue of his stripes? Not only the cross, his crucifixion, but on the basis of the stripes that Isaiah writes of here. And this passage is quoted twice in the New Testament, once in the context of spiritual healing that is ours because of his stripes, a spiritual wholeness that he provides to us. Uh, Peter writes of this in his first epistle in uh, chapter uh, 2. The second time that this passage is recorded is in Matthew chapter 8 where it is spoken of in the context of physical healing. And so there is a physical healing that is ours. There's a physical healing that has uh, has come into human history by virtue of the scourging that he suffered on the morning of his crucifixion that was not available in the same way uh, prior. And, uh, and, and there is healing available to us as Christians. And I think that while the Lord may heal us many, many times in this life uh, as Christians, apart from the rapture of the church, most Christians, uh, we're going to die of whatever we get sick of last. And uh, that's just the way that it is. But it does not violate the promise here that by His stripes we are healed because the moment that we lay this body down, we receive our perfect healing, our complete healing. When we move from this body, this corruption puts on incorruption and we receive the new body which is created for heaven and prepared for heaven. Sometimes when people will, you know, pray for me or I'll hear them praying for somebody else and they want a, you know, a prayer of healing for their cold or the flu or something and somebody says, now Lord, just give them a complete healing. Sometimes I just 
wait for them to drop dead and for them to receive their new body. The complete healing is to be done with this all together. Whether we realize it or not, we're dying on a daily basis. A complete healing means to lay this thing down. And uh, so, you'll forgive me if I cringe and somebody does that while we're praying for you. But by His stripes, truly, we are healed, both in this life as He chooses, but ultimately a complete healing when we receive our new body. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Sheep are very well known for their tendency to stray and end up in danger and end up lost. And so, like sheep, we are born with a fallen nature that causes us to wander, causes us uh, to stray and to follow our own ways, and then we become lost in sin and in need of a Savior. It's a beautiful image. Uh, of, of mankind and his need for a shepherd. Though oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Jesus never defended himself. He died for our sins willingly. Silent under the scourging, he had no sin to confess while they laid the lashes on him. And he didn't complain about the injustice of his crucifixion to Pilate or to the Jewish religious leaders. He didn't attempt to defend himself. He didn't say, this is a travesty of justice on a religious level, on a political level, on even a secular level. There was no complaint that morning from him because this is what he was born into the world to do, though innocent and sinless, to die in our uh, place. The only time that Jesus did speak up on the morning of his crucifixion was when they asked him a question that was worthy of being answered. And they asked, are you the Son of God? Are you the Christ? And then he broke his silence and he spoke that that was the truth about himself, but never a complaint about the cross that uh, was coming. Jesus said, the cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not uh, drink it. And then verse 7, he was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And so the servant is likened to a lamb here, a lamb uh, to be slaughtered and uh, plainly speaks here of the Messiah's death and the Hebrew uh, mind, the image of a lamb being slain would have immediately been associated with the sin offering of the law of uh, in the law of Moses, and so the death of the innocent for the sins of the guilty. A lamb was offered every Passover for every single household among the Jews. John the Baptist, of course, understood all of this very, very clearly when he declared concerning Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 8, he, is taken from, he was taken from prison and judgment. In other words, he would be arrested and tried, and the resultant sentence would be death. And who will declare his generation? This refers to the fact that the Messiah will be cut off. He will die in his prime, and he will die having no descendants. He will die childless, even as Jesus did for he was cut off from the land of the living. He died for the transgressions of my people. Uh, he was stricken. And so here's another indication in the passage that not only would the Messiah suffer, but he would die, and further that he would die for the transgressions of others. 
And then in verse 9, And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. And so this speaks of his burial. So we have his death, and now we have his burial. And here is the further proof of the fact that Jesus did actually die. There is the Passover plot, the book that, and others who contend that Jesus didn't actually die upon the cross, but that he was in pretty bad shape. But by the time they laid him in the coolness of uh, the tomb, that as he lay down upon the coolness of that rock, he revived. He never actually died. And yet uh, here we're told that he did die and that he was, they made his grave with the wicked but with the rich uh, at his uh, death. And so uh, th- this passage tells us that the Roman soldiers apparently, they intended uh, to just bury Jesus in some mass grave. They didn't cut a tomb out of stone to bury criminals in those days. They had a mass grave. They'd take the bodies and heap them out there. And in some cases, they would just throw them out to rot by virtue of the elements. And so they had planned on doing the same thing with Jesus' body, the Roman soldiers did, as surely as they did it with the two thieves that Jesus was crucified with. And so this was what was in their mind. Uh, put it, give him the grave with the wicked, the wicked man that he is. And this is where Joseph of Arimathea stepped in and he became, whether knowingly or unknowingly, uh, he became the human instrument by which this prophecy uh, was fulfilled. He goes on further and declared that because he has done no violence nor any deceit, uh, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. In other words, the Messiah will die and be executed even though he's innocent of all wrongdoing in terms of word and deed, speaking of his sinlessness. And because of his sinlessness, the Father gave Jesus a proper burial. And yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. And so Jesus' death upon the cross, as we saw this morning, uh, didn't occur because some series of events, you know, ran amok and the day went sideways for him. And then somehow uh, the crucifixion was the regretful result of all of this. His death upon the cross for our sins was a part of a great divine uh, plan, God's plan of salvation. In verse 10, God declared concerning Messiah or concerning the Father, when you make his soul an offering for sin, and the Lord made his soul, the soul of Jesus, an offering for our sin, he alone provides the forgiveness of our sins. And that was what he was born to the world to provide us with, a forgive, an offering for sins that... Uh, up to this point was unknown in the world. You remember in the Old Testament that when those sacrifices were offered for sin, they were a kofar. They were a covering. They never ultimately dealt with sin. They never washed away sin uh, because the, the blood of rams and bulls and goats could never cleanse sin. They simply year by year provided a covering for sin until the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one who is able to wash away sin, came into human history, Jesus himself, and he provides us with a forgiveness that they only 
dreamed of the Old Testament saints under that old uh, covenant. In verse 10, he that is the father shall see his seed. And Isaiah prophesied earlier in the passage that the Messiah would die childless. He would die without physical descendants. But here he prophesies that Messiah would have descendants of another kind. Speaking of spiritual uh, descendants. Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it produces much fruit. And that much fruit is us today as Christians. Uh, Jesus, uh, John wrote concerning Jesus in John chapter 1, and he said, But as many as received him, that is Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Amazing the specifics of the prophecy, declaring that he will not have any physical descendants, but his descendants will be spiritual. He will birth an entirely new family into human history, even as Jesus did. He shall prolong his days. This speaks of the resurrection of the Messiah. Yes, he will experience death, but also experience life. After that death, he'll be raised never ever to die again. In the New Testament, the crucifixion of Jesus is never spoken of independent of the resurrection. It's always his death and his burial and his resurrection. That's the good news. All three things constitute and are important part of the plan of salvation for mankind. And interesting here, even in Isaiah chapter 53, Jesus' death is spoken of, his burial is spoken of, and his resurrection is spoken of in an absolutely fabulous way and insight spiritually that only the Holy Spirit could have given uh, to uh, Isaiah. And then in verse 10, the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. All of these wonderful eternal purposes of God will be accomplished through him because of his obedience to the plan and the will of God. God's pleasure is to save sinners. And here is the Messiah coming into the world to allow the Father and the Son to experience the greatness of of that pleasure. And he that is the Lord shall see the labor of his that is the Messiah's soul and be satisfied. The salvation that is found in the Messiah, found in Jesus, is the only salvation that satisfies the Father. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus provides mankind with justification, a right standing before God in which God looks at us just as if we had never sinned. How could Isaiah know that? And yet he did know that. Not only seeing the, what was before his eyes prophetically of Jesus upon the cross, but the implications spiritually of the cross. An incredible revelation that is here in Isaiah uh, chapter 53. And by his knowledge my servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And so Jesus provides mankind with justification. How does it happen? 
by his knowledge, by the knowledge of him, by entering into a relationship, a personal relationship with him, by putting our faith in him. And therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul under death. And this speaks of the ultimate success of the servant. And so most of the passage speaks of the suffering and the rejection of the Messiah, but here we're told that all of it has a happy ending, not only for us as sinners, but for him as well. It ends in triumph, in his exaltation, in his glory, as is demonstrated in his resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven, where he is seated now at the right hand of the Father. And he was numbered with the transgressors, even as Jesus was crucified amongst the two thieves. We're told once again in verse 12 that he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors, even as Jesus did. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I mean, the details of this prophecy concerning the Messiah. If Jesus isn't the Messiah, no one is the Messiah. The the prophetic picture is so detailed that it pinpoints down to one single person in human history. And it does it for a reason. That's the purpose uh, of it. And this passage is an absolute paradox, this description of the Messiah at the time of Isaiah, of a Messiah who was to come. We're able to look back upon the fulfillment of the passage Because the passage describes, and here's the paradoxical element of it, it describes both a suffering Savior and a conquering King, all at the same time. And so much so that the Jewish rabbis said that there must be a double Messiah in order to fulfill this prophecy. They looked at Isaiah chapter 53 historically and said there must be a double Messiah to fulfill this. This cannot be the explanation or fulfilled by any one human being. And yet Jesus comes on the scene and he fulfilled it to perfection. No wonder the apostles kept pointing to people. And when they would come and speak to them of putting their faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, and they were constantly pointing people to the Old Testament Scriptures for their a basis for their faith in Jesus as the Messiah. Paul, we're told, continually in the book of Acts, he would go into the synagogue and he would reason with them from the Scriptures for why Jesus had to be the Christ. And I can tell you, as you know very well experientially, at this moment, you can spend hours describing Jesus as the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53 alone to say nothing of the rest of Isaiah and Genesis and Micah and Psalms and everywhere else you would want to go. Now, I want to close by just making mention of the fact of, of why this servant that's described in Isaiah 52 and 53 can't be the nation of Israel. And many Jews in an attempt to keep from being confronted by the obvious of this passage. 
will declare that this is not talking about an individual human being who will come into human history and fulfill these prophecies. They declare that this passage is a description of the sufferings of the nation of Israel throughout human history at the hands of the Gentiles. But the problem with that position is that Israel has never died for the transgressions or the sins of the world as is repeatedly declared of the Messiah throughout the passage. In fact, Israel's history was a long history of their own transgressions and the captivities and the bondages and the consequences that they bore for all of that. Remember that Isaiah has just spent 52 chapters detailing the horrible sin and rebellion of Israel. They were in no place to provide the forgiveness of sins and salvation to the rest of the world. And very, very significantly, in verse 8, it clearly declares that the Messiah would come to provide forgiveness for the transgressions of his people, speaking of the Jews themselves. It can't speak of the nation of Israel and the verse 8 declare what it does in the way that it does. Now, this passage speaks very clearly about an innocent individual who will come into the world in order to provide the forgiveness of sins for the transgressions of the whole world, both Jew and Gentile alike. And I think it's very instructive to realize that the long, long messianic and rabbinic Uh, rabbinical interpretation of Isaiah 53, that it was held by the Jewish rabbis for 1,100 years after Jesus' ascension into heaven, that this spoke of an individual and not of of the nation of Israel itself. In fact, a Jewish Bible that I use uh, for studying the Old Testament Uh, during the course of the week. It tackles this particular passage and it makes absolutely no attempt to ascribe this to the nation of Israel. uh, But it ascribes it to the servant, some individual that's been promised uh, because even it, as much as it might have wanted to say, no, this doesn't speak of Jesus, it doesn't speak of an individual, it couldn't honestly embrace the idea that this was speaking of the nation of Israel clearly. It's speaking of an individual, and who that individual is should be clear to anyone with an open mind. Let's stand together. When you look at passages like this in the Bible, it's not only a fascinating revelation of Jesus, but this revelation in Isaiah chapter 53 is one that holds mankind responsible for what they do and what we do with Christ. And when you know a passage like this, and I'm more aware than even you are, maybe not quite as aware as you are, that I have gone long tonight, uh, but is necessary related to the passage. But when you read something like what we have seen today, the marvel, the absolute, they talk about the seven wonders of the ancient world. What we have just seen is one of the wonders of the Scripture, that the God who created you and loves us 
is provided for us in his word so that when the Messiah came into the world, we would recognize him not only for who he is, but what he came to do and then make him our Lord and to make him our Savior. If you've never done that, there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and we'd love to pray with you to put your faith in Christ tonight under the glorious weight and the witness and the testimony of this passage. When you read scriptures like this, uh, it is the world talks about Christians living in this blind faith. But the faith that we have is not blind at all. When you look at passages like this and you see what it is that they're saying, you realize that it is not faith in Christ that is blind, but it is unbelief that is blind, unbelievably blind, in the light of the witness that God has given to us of His Son who would come to provide the kind of life and to meet every need that we have within our life as sinners and as human beings. Lord, we thank you so much tonight for this portrait of our Savior. We thank you so much for the marvel and the miracle. Lord, so often the world wants to see a miracle. So often we cry out for a miracle in some portion of our life, and yet we acknowledge even now that what we have just studied tonight is a miracle, a marvel that only you could produce. And we thank you for your love for our souls that was so great that you included a description of him with this kind of detail so that when he came into human history, no one could miss him for who he was and miss what he came to do. Thank you, Lord, for understanding what people like me would need, the kind of clarity that I would need to know that my faith and our faith was not being misplaced. And we thank you tonight, not only for the forgiveness of our sins, but the sacrifice of Jesus to bring us into a personal relationship with you. Thank you, Father, for our Savior. And we thank you tonight in his name, in Jesus' name, amen.